I'm sure most of us here love the beauty of nature, and each of us have special places that uh, we like to go to that are just beautiful. You may enjoy going to a lake shore. You may enjoy the hills. Several places I particularly enjoy, a place like Sedona, Arizona, that's just something beautiful about that place. And then, of course, the Rocky Mountains growing up there, uh, just a wonderful majesty. I like the coast of Oregon. Uh, not necessarily the state, but I enjoy the coast of Oregon, and that's beautiful. <clears throat> Many of you could give me different places that you like to go to that uh, just are uh, a real expression of the beauty of the world in which we live. But it's been said, just as the, all the colors of the spectrum come together to form pure white light, which illuminates our world, so all the attributes of God come together into His holiness. His holiness is that attribute of God which shows forth above all the beauty of our God. Unfortunately, many don't see it that way, but that's certainly how the Word of God presents the holiness of God. And understanding the holiness of God has an enormous impact on our lives. James Stewart talking about the move of God that occurred, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not James Stewart, but uh, Duncan Campbell speaking about the move of God in Lewis uh, said, let me take you to a little barn by the side of the road and see those men on their faces before God. They've gathered to pray, he said, but this is no ordinary prayer meeting. Here are men led by their pastor who are there to do business with God. And at 10 o'clock at night, they kneel down on the straw to plead with God that he would make bare his arm in revival. One night when they were there till about 4 or 5 in the morning, uh, a young deacon from the church arose from his knees and began to read Psalm 24. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive the blessings of the Lord. Brethren, this young deacon said, We have been praying for months for revival, waiting before God, but I would like to ask you are our hearts clean? Is our heart pure? Well, this simple Spirit of God-inspired challenge caused them to fall on their knees in confession and rededication. They began to really travail in prayer. And about an hour later, it was obvious that they had broken through. They were exhausted, but the barn was filled with the glory of God and the power of God began to let loose on the Isle of Lewis. But I want you to note how that here and in every other great revival and the accounts of them, the very clear awareness of the holiness of God was key for God to be able to work. It caused them to understand how glorious God is and His beauty, and it also exposed their need for God. Hodge, the commentator, said, The holiness of God 
is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of his consummate perfection and total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power, the holiness of God. And oh, if we deny, as Charnock says in his book on the attributes of God, the God of purity, then we will be polluted in soul and body. And so this matter of the holiness of God is very, very important. And we're going to look at just three key aspects here today in our study of this attribute of the great I am. First of all, he is the separate God. I'll explain why I use that for the first point. Holiness is defined as being distinct, separate from his creatures and separate from all evil. The word holy in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, means apartness, holiness, sacredness, uh, separateness, uh, set-apartness. It is set apart from all that is imperfect and that is impure. Let me give you, as we have done on a number of these studies, give you some definitions here. Thiessen says, by the holiness of God, we mean that he is absolutely separate from and exalted above all his creatures, and that he equally is separate from moral evil and sin. So you have the two aspects, and let's look at those two aspects. He's transcendent. That means, as Burkhoff says, he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. And so God is far above. He is separate from. We cannot try to understand God based upon our own understanding of man except that we are created in his image. But he is above and beyond, separate from in every category. Uh, he is absolute in his majesty. He, we are, he has, he's the, has the great awesome reality of being the creator in his distinctions from the creature. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. We'll look at one verse and then I will quote many more here as we go through. But our God cannot be made in our image. We're made in the image of God as far as spirit and personality and will. But in our finiteness, he's not like us. In our impurity, he is not like us. God is far above and separate from his creation. The children of Israel had been uh, just overawed by what God had done. They were going through great misery, and especially when Moses came, it began to be a great trial, and they had great unbelief. But then God in His mighty power had the ten plagues come upon Egypt, destroying Egypt. And the final plague destroyed the firstborn of Pharaoh. And that caused the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. And God brought them to what seemed like a disastrous place, a place that was hemmed in by mountains right at the shore of the Red Sea. And then Satan inspires Pharaoh and his armies to come, and they are coming, and it looks hopeless. And then, under the direction of God, Moses puts his rod over the Red Sea, and it parted, and they went over on dry ground. 
all two million plus of the people. And in the next chapter in Exodus, after that explanation is, we're looking here at Exodus 15. Look with me at verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? The Israelites had to admit there is no one like our God, Jehovah, the God of Israel. Uh, it was an amazing display of the power of God. For God, it was nothing. But for us as man, it was something very clearly, uh, an evidence of His power. But you note that in their song, they speak of the fact that He's glorious in holiness. He is set apart in His abilities, His power, every aspect of His person. He is far above and separate from His creation. And the other aspect of it is the fact of, his, of the ethical difference. He is separate from moral evil or sin. Holiness points to God's majestic purity, His ethical majesty. Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, same basic word, set yourself apart, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy, neither shall ye defile yourselves with any matter of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And so our God is completely free of all of the aspects of the depravity of man. He is far above that. He is perfect in His moral purity and His holiness. Uh, Psalm 11 verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. The Lord is in His holy temple. And my friends, this is something that we need to come to full grips with. And this is what causes there to be two distinct worldviews in our world today. We believe God is the God of the Bible. And He has all power. He is separate from His creation. And He is separate from all evil. He is holy. And He's our Creator. And we must give an account to Him. And there is a great need for mankind today, instead of rationalizing our sin, and we look at the moral revolution and all that is happening, that's not progress, folks. That is not evolution. That is de degeneration. This is the second law of thermodynamics in the moral realm, decay and corruption. This is not progress. And we as believers must not at all be intimidated by the cultural pressures of our day. We need to realize that God has not changed. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is a holy God separate from all evil. And God will judge. And so it's very important that we understand that. Holiness is the outworking also of His perfection. 
Again, another quote here, Thiessen, in the first sense, his holiness is not really an attribute that is coordinate with the other attributes, but is rather coextensive with them. It denotes the perfection in, of God in all that he is. He goes on to say, holiness occupies the foremost rank among the attributes of God. It is the attribute by which God wanted to be especially known in Old Testament times. Ends another commentator says, many see holiness as the foremost attribute of all because holiness pervades all the other attributes of God and is consistent with all he is and does. You can take all of the attributes of God and they all come together in this matter that he is separate from all of his creation. He is above and his moral purity is the great beauty of who he is. That causes him to be merciful. That causes him to be selfless in love. That causes him to be long-suffering. It causes him to do all that he has done for the welfare of man. It's what brought Jesus Christ to this earth. My friends, if Jesus Christ was not perfectly holy, he would never have come, nor could he have died for us. The minute you put some smudges on the holiness of God, the minute you bring down God a little bit, you have destroyed the hope of mankind. Now, the love of God comes from the holiness of God. And uh, most theologians believe it is the foremost attribute. It's a coordination of all the attributes. Joshua 24, 19, and Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. He's challenging them here at this point of the insincerity of their heart and calling them to make a faith-filled covenant with their God. He is a an holy God. That's clearly seen in the visions that we've looked at that God gave to Moses. When God revealed himself to Job, he fell on his face at, and, and cried out about the holiness of God. And we'll see a little bit later, as was read earlier, Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, what did he hear there in the heavens? Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. And so uh, God is perfectly holy. When God caused the people to draw near, as we studied in our Exodus series, to Mount Sinai, as he was going to reveal his presence on the top of that mount and was going to fill that mount with his glory and give the word of God to the nation of Israel, there were bounds set because there is that, that, hope, that reality of the holiness of God. Uh, Exodus 19, 12, and thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about saying, take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not in hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. God wanted them to draw near, but there is a limit. Man cannot see the holiness of God without dying. It's only through the mercy of God that we can approach. By the way, folks, we live in the day in which we've gone into the veil and we have the Holy Spirit in us. As I preach on this, and you look at the Old Testament days and how God was presented, we need to be rejoicing at the privilege we have in this day because of what Christ did. There was the Holy of Holies, 
Exodus 26, 33, and thou shalt hang up the veil under the tachets, and thou shalt bring it in thither, thither within the veil, uh, the ark of the covenant, and the veil shall divide unto you. Here you have the separateness again between the holy place and the most holy. Thirty times the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jehovah as the Holy One. His throne is established on the basis of His holiness. Psalm 47, 8, God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. John 17, that great high priestly prayer, verse 11, he says, Jesus is praying to the Father, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I come to Thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. Now that's significant. Here you have the second person of the Trinity praying to the first person of the Trinity and what term does he use as an adjective to, to, to clarify and define God? Holy. That to me is very significant. And then Revelation 4.8, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about them. We're looking into heaven at this time, the vision that God gave to John. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The eternality, the immutability, all wrapped up into the holiness of God. Holiness is ascribed to all three persons of the Trinity. I've already mentioned about the Father. Isaiah 41, 14, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The Son, Acts 3, 14, in that message, but ye denied the Holy One, speaking directly of Jesus and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And of course, what's the name that we uh, think of when we think of the third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. All oh, the Trinity is, is, a, is an enormous thought, and uh, it's one that we need to understand uh, that can't be understood. Three persons, all uh, three persons, but one God. The famous story of Augustine who was puzzling over this doctrine and uh, walking along the beach one day observed a little boy with a bucket running back and forth to pour water into a little hole. And he, Augustine asked, what are you doing? And the boy replied, I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. <laughs> Augustine realized that he had been trying to put the infinite God into his little finite mind. Our God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, and God the Spirit is holy. All right. Secondly, not only is He the separate one, that's the main theology I wanted to get across on the holiness, but now let's look at just two more points that get the reality of how it affects us. The saving God. We've got a problem as mankind. We have an impossible condition. He's holy and we're not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, both from Romans chapter 3. Men cannot reach God because we are sinful and God is perfect. Revelation uh, makes it very clear in uh, chapter 21 that no one 
who has sin can enter into heaven. People have been trying their best to work their way to heaven. J. Vernon McGee gives the illustration uh, about the game of jumping to Catalina Island. It was about 25 miles directly across uh, from the pier in Santa Monica. He said, we used to go to the end of the pier and jump off the end to see who could, who could jump to Catalina. Now up to the present, no one has made it. There have been some mighty good jumps, but nobody uh, yet has made it. It's a delightful game because when you jump, you get wet. And you jump farther than maybe you did before. And you jump farther than somebody else. But the fact is, you're not even close to Catalina. Now, if you want to take this biblically, you can't even jump. Because we have no merit of our own. There is a great chasm, folks, between sinful mankind who is finite and an infinite, perfect, holy God. Friends, we're here this morning because of this very reality. God made provision for that chasm to be able to be crossed. And that is through the work of Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art a pure eye, speaking of God, than to behold evil, and cannot, canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devourest the man that is more righteous than he? Isaiah 59.1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. Now, let me just say, folks, a true view of the holiness of God will cause you to understand your desperate need of a Savior because you cannot save yourself. It is one of the most important things to, uh, to grasp. We, it, the minute you minimize sin, you could easily miss the need to trust Christ as your Savior. The law, which speaks to the holiness of God, speaks of the character, the beauty of who He is and His perfection. The law, as Galatians 3 says, is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so, the more we understand the holiness of God, the more we're going to understand we need a Savior. Evans says, it's just this vision of God that we need today. When the tendency to deny the reality or the awfulness of sin is so prevalent... Our view of the necessity of the atonement will depend very largely upon our view of the holiness of God. There may be someone here, or more than one, maybe several here today, and you think you're okay. You think because of your religious standing, because of your works, that somehow God's going to be impressed with your merit and allow you into heaven. May I say, may I say it kindly but directly? There's no person sitting in here who's holy. You know in your heart of hearts you fall short of the glory of God. Every person in here is in deep trouble. We are, are racing fast toward an eternity of judgment unless we have a Savior. And my friend, I would encourage you this morning, if you've never settled that and do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven, I would encourage you this morning to take a good hard long look at the holiness of God and see your need. I've had to do that. Every person here has had to do that. So the only hope we have is through the merit of another. Someone else has to take our place. Someone else has to be our substitute. 
Man can neither possess nor acquire sinlessness. No, it's not possible. Every person here is sin. You cannot go to heaven on your own. Well, that's a startling fact, but it's a reality. I can't go to heaven on my own. I'm a sinner. We've all sinned. And when you start thinking about the holiness of God, it becomes even a a deeper burden. But through Christ, we can have that access. Oh, listen to these verses, folks. Ephesians 2.18. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Hebrews 10.19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. My friends, it's through the finished work of Christ. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 says, so that we could have the righteousness of God through Him. He completely paid for every sin you've ever committed or will commit and mine and everyone here. He bore the full judgment of God the Father. He looked squarely into the holiness of God. He being perfect, being God, yet fully a man, was able to be the substitute. God planned this throughout the ages because that was the only hope that mankind made in His image would have. And my friends, Jesus Christ, His blood was the atonement for your sins. He paid the price. He rose again. He is today able to save you if you will come to Him. And the key is to put aside this matter, I can do it, uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. You've got to cling to the mercy of God and He will save you every time for eternity if you'll simply admit your need, believe that He died for you, rose again, and ask Him to save you. At that very moment, the Bible says, you will have everlasting life. That's a glorious truth. By the way, the holiness of God is very important because if we get a hold of it, we need a Savior. At the great parliament of religions years ago held in Chicago, every religion was, was represented. I can't imagine what that was like. During one session, Dr. Joseph Cook of Boston suddenly rose and said, Gentlemen, I beg to introduce to you a woman with great sorrow. Bloodstains are on her hands and nothing she has tried will remove them the blood is that of murder. She has been driven to desperation in her distress. Is there anything in your religion that will remove her sin and give her peace? A hush fell on the gathering. No one could reply. Raising his eyes heavenward, Dr. Cook then cried out, John, can you tell this woman how to get rid of her awful sin? Preacher waited as if listening for a reply. Suddenly he cried, listen, John speaks. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Not a soul broke the silence. The representative of the Eastern religions and Western cults sat dumb. In the face of human need, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone could meet the need. The sin of the race demanded the blood of Calvary. My friends, do not lightly face this matter of the holiness of God. You know in your heart He's holy. 
Your conscience speaks loudly to that matter. But he loves you because he's holy with a perfect love. Jesus Christ died for you, the second person of the Trinity. And he can save you today. That's the good news of holiness. And then thirdly, the sanctifying God. God wants to not only justify us or legally declare us righteous, holy through his shed blood on the cross so that we can have eternal life, but he wants us while we're here after we have come to Christ and we are, are created in righteousness and true holiness in our spirit, he wants that to be lived out. He wants us to live a life separate from sin and the defilement of this world. And so some key thoughts here. Christians should approach God with reverence. Hebrews 12, 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Note this last verse, for our God is a consuming fire. One of the big problems is Christians who had reverence enough to get saved get all too familiar in the wrong way with God. Now, we should be very close. We should speak to him as a, as a friend because he is a friend that loves us. But my friends, he should be reverenced with a godly fear. And it is vital for believers today to understand that God's desire is to enable us by the Spirit of the living God to live a holy life. Job, who knew the Lord, who was probably the strongest uh, believer on earth at that time, Satan tried him, and he went. Through, and when he met God at the end, Job chapter forty, verse three. Then Job answered the Lord and said, "Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no farther." He immediately understood the holiness of God and how foolish he was to even question God. Isaiah, one of the most godly prophets, uh, when he met the Lord in that vision in Isaiah 6, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's after he had seen the cherubim crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. That's good news, folks. Right in the presence of God, where the holiness of God is revealed, because he confessed his sin, what did God do? He forgave him. He cleansed him and enabled him to be able, who will go for me? Here am I, send me. And God was able to use him in a wonderful way. And so the way that we got saved, folks, is the same way we need to keep approaching God. God hates sin as much as he's always hated sin. And he hates sin in our life, not because he's all upset in the wrong way, it's because he knows every sin we have uh, keeps us back from knowing Him, from having blessing, from having a life that has purpose uh, and is able to be free from the shackles of selfishness in this life. God wants us to live that way, but we have to have a reverence to uh, God. The great Christian British statesman Gladstone 
served as prime minister between 1868 and 1894, a very long time, uh, was uh, talking at length about some of the happy changes he had witnessed during his lifetime in the lot of the English people. And he had a pretty optimistic um, speech there. And one of the students said, challenged him, sir, are we to understand that you have no anxieties for the future? Are there no adverse signs? The grand old man of England answered slowly, yes, there is one thing that frightens me. The fear of God seems to be dying out in the minds of men. And it, if it frightened him then, it ought to terrify us today. But we as believers need to realize that just as the holiness of God brought us to Christ for saving faith, it will bring us to Christ for, for victory and overcoming power. If, we'll, if we will humble ourselves and confess our sins and see ourselves um, uh, from a scriptural point of view. Simon Peter had a number of flaws, but in Luke 5, 8, when he saw the power of God, he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And that's how you can grow. Not to have confidence in yourself in the Christian life, but realize this holy God loved me. I can trust him. I can't do it myself, but he will forgive me if I'm honest. I can't play games with him. I can't um, try to figure out my, I shouldn't come with my terms and I'm going to live as a Christian. If I surrender everything to him, which he deserves, he will then um, extend his grace in a powerful way to me. And, uh, and then you can see God mightily work. But my friends, every one of us who's a believer, never forget, he's a holy God. If it hadn't been for the day you trusted Christ, you'd still be heading toward an eternity in hell. He's a holy God. When you pray to him, that's who he is. And that doesn't need to be a negative, fearful thing. That ought to be a positive. It ought to encourage us. It ought to stir us. Yes, we tremble because we're sinners, but he always forgives. And it should change our lives regularly. That's why when you spend time with God, one of the attributes that will deeply move you is the holiness of God. But so many Christians are so uh, burned out with the impurity of this world, they cannot see that. And they not only, they run from the holiness of God, which means they're running away from the mercy of God. They're running away from the forgiveness of God. So Christians need to accept God's standard for life. And God will uh, uh, not do anything that is sin. You can trust him. Job 34.10, Therefore hearken to me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. We can trust him. Our standard ought to be to be like him. 1 Peter 1.15 was quoted, But as he which is called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. What's our standard for holiness? What is God expecting you today? What, how does he want you to live, according to this verse? He wants you to be as holy as he is. That could absolutely devastate you if you didn't realize you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But did you know you can? Oh, we're not going to be like God, but you can have victory over sin. But you've got to be honest. You've got to be willing to, to uh, confess your sin. You've got to be willing to look to Him. And the Holy Spirit will allow you. God never asks us to do something we cannot do. 
We couldn't save ourselves, but he did it for us. We can't overcome sin, but he'll do it for us. We can't live holy lives, but he will live his life through us. And my, in this dark world, that's a refreshing reality. But you can't lower the standard. It's just like thinking a little sixth grade boy thinking he's a great athlete because his um, uh, basketball hoop was put down to eight feet instead of ten feet or seven feet instead of ten feet. He can dunk and everything. Now he's ready for professional basketball, right? (laughs) No, I'll put it back up to ten feet and he looks pretty, uh, pretty anemic as a basketball player. And when we lower God's standard, it might look, we can think we're doing okay, but we need to look full force into God as, in fact, 1 John 1, 7 is so good, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, Christ his son, cleanses us from all sin. The key, folks, to living a victorious life is not to be afraid of the holiness of God and live in the light of it. Just let God continually reveal who he is to you. Ryrie says, the ramification of this is obvious. Walk in the light. A proper concept of holiness as a requirement for Christian living would end a lot of discussion about what is permitted to the Christian and what is not. It seems as though many are trying to discover how close they can come to sin without uh, being cut off from their particular group, uh, Christian group or clique. Instead of determining the proper propriety of things on the simple basis of is it holy don't be tempted to be a leader in or the follower of let's skate on as thin ice as possible group instead be a leader in holiness this will please God because it imitates him and we ought to say a loud amen to that Jerry Bridges in the pursuit of holiness. One day as I was reading the second chapter of 1 John, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than than of John's. He was saying in effect, make it your aim not to sin. As I thought about this, I realized that, that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? <laughs> no, the Bible says we are not to sin. God wants us to have victory, and that's the final thought here, victory through the merits of Christ. Romans 5, 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. I've quoted a number of times from Howard Hendricks, why in the world do Christians um, build chicken coops on the foundation of a skyscraper? Do you realize what Jesus Christ has done for you? You can live a life with the power and the holiness of God and be a glory to God. And yet, we forget all that he has done. Let me just end with this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. There is nothing which my heart desires more than you to, uh, than to, you to see the members of this church distinguished for holiness. It is the Christian's crown and glory. An unholy church It is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. Oh, it is an abomination, hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. And the larger the church, the more influential, the worse nuisance does it become when it becomes unholy. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. Folks, the reason we're seeing what we're seeing in the decline in our country, I've said it over and over, it's not the unsaved world, it's the church of the living God. 
My friends, we are to be like Christ. We are the body of Christ. He is the head of the church. And my friends, he is holy. And we have no right to lower what holiness means. The word of God makes it clear. But again, I want to remind you, that's the beauty of who God is. And it's the beauty of what we can be. It's our hope for salvation. It's our hope for deliverance. It is the love and mercy and long-suffering of our God he is holy. Everything that we have that's valuable comes from the fact that He's holy. So let's don't run from it, but let's embrace it. Let's bow for prayer.